Oda, 30 feet away. Jumper in the air. He's got it! Lamar Odom has won it for Rhode Island! In traffic, off-balance shot. Thank you! Jared Terrell in Rhode Island has done it in the final five seconds on a circus shot from Jared Terrell. A career-high night for him and a victory for Rhode Island. Look it up, Dutton. Run out, Rowdy, look out! Oh, steal by Vance Russell off of Young. Three. Don't do it to him like that, Vance. Dribbles into the forecourt. Iverson going up. He ducks it home as the buzzer sounds. And Rowdy, the 8-10 champs. It is finally that time of the week once again. This is episode six of the Roadie Baseline Podcast. My name is Gary, joined as always this week by my co-host Andrew on a jam-packed episode of Roadie Baseline. Right, Andrew? Oh, absolutely. We're gonna we're just gonna be up front with you guys. We got a special episode for you guys today. We got we have an interview with our first guest, Stone Freeman. So a couple of our normal segments had to get cut this week, but that uh, that interview we had with Stone was. Jam-packed with information, and I know Gary enjoyed it as much as I did. And we just want to say thank you to Stone for coming out and recording with us because it was a blast last night. Yeah, we're going to get to that Stone interview uh, later on in the episode. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff to go over this week. Uh, we're going to chat about the two games that you were I had against George Mason and Duquesne, uh, get you updated around the A-10 for this week with a lot of information and a lot of scheduling changes this week, uh, and then go into your game previews against Fordham and LaSalle, which we'll get into a little later on. Uh, so, Andrew, let's jump right in uh, the first game uh, you were I had against George Mason. That game happened. And, uh last Saturday, uh, what do you what do you got? What wh- what do you say about this one? You said a key word last Saturday. With everything that's gone on, that game feels like it was months ago. It was it was topsy turvy in the beginning, but then you and I probably played the best half of basketball that they've played all year, and were able to come out with an eighty to sixty win against George Mason, and it had all the feeling of that game where it could have turned the season around. There is one thing that we do need to get out of the way before we get over, before we get into ourselves. Jermaine Harris did sit out that game, and it was said that after it was a coach's decision as per David Cox, you can all take what you want from that. It could be disciplinary issues, rotation issues, just whatever. I know last year he had sat out a couple of games at the beginning of this year. It could be a flare from the injury. Nobody knows it was a coach's decision, but that's that was one of the big stories going into the game. And... Didn't get off great. URI got down early. We're turning the ball over, and we were like, oh, here we go again. And then they turned it on. We were able to tie the game at the half. And then in the second half, they proved that they were the better team, and they destroyed George Mason. I'm just I'm just going to say it, right? The, the, the point that I want to make, right? URI had nine turnovers in the first half. In the second half, they only had three. And they played better defense. They changed the tempo, and they were getting stops. The biggest factors and exactly what we talked about week after week that this team needs to do. Exactly. Turnovers are were the story of that game. In the first half, they turned the ball over so many times. Second half, they had three turnovers and it showed on the court. They shot the ball amazingly. Second half, they shot 53% from the field, 50% from three, 75% from the free throw line. If you keep those numbers up throughout a whole game, you'll win that game. And before we get too much farther, I do want to give a nice congratulations to Fats Russell. He's the third player in Rhode Island history to get his 200th career steal. And he's about 10 away from becoming the 
program leader in steel. So that was a nice, a very nice thing to happen. But and that was it was it was probably it was one of the best games. And Rhodey had their walk-ons for the first time in the in the season. So you know it's a good game when Rhodey has your walk-ons in. Yeah, uh, another big game that I want to bring up too. Uh, Mikel Mitchell had another great game for URI. Uh, he did have three first half fouls, but he did a great job. Uh, getting back into the second half, uh, the commentators actually said that he was practicing free throws uh, during halftime of that game. Uh, he missed all of his free throws in the, in the first half, but then made only missed one in the second half. So you know that he's working toward it, and that was great to see. And that that and that's what you need out of these guys the the heart and the knowledge to know, hey, my free throws are always costing us the game. And he went out there and he fixed it. And you got to give him. I hope he keeps it up. And it was also his first career double double for URI and that matter when he last year with Maryland. He had 14 points, 10 rebounds. He was efficient, 3 of 5 from the field goal from the field and went to the free throw line and made his free throws, 8 of 13. And like you said, he he missed them in the first half and then came back at halftime and made all his free throws. All the props in the world for him to work on that. Yeah, URI had a, a great game. We were a little worried for a little while, but they, they turned it on the second half. Come out with the win at the Ryan Center, 80-60, your final in Kingston. And then it brought on, we thought, going in, that we had Duquesne on Wednesday night, and it started off amazingly. You really, It made you really do believe that this game, that URI was turning the corner and was going to be on their game for the rest of the season, that that UMass loss was the page turner like the Fordham loss a few years ago. They got up to a 44-31 lead. They led by 17 points. The team was clicking. They were shooting. They were shooting threes like they couldn't miss. They were shooting. They shot 83% from the free throw line in the first half. They were doing everything right. They were turning Duquesne over. They were out in transition, crashing the basket. They had a fast pace, great for them. The ball movement was insane. I remember a nice little pass that I think it was Antoine Walker got a dunk off of. It was just, it was so nice to see. Everybody was sharing the ball. And then I think I texted you, Gary. It was like, you remember the last time that we had a big lead against Duquesne? And lo and behold, it happened. URI stopped, stopped playing the way that they did in the first half. And Duquesne came back and was able to win the game 71-69 to in an arena that should not be hosting college basketball, but that's a whole other discussion for another day. That Duquesne should be embarrassed with how where they're playing their basketball games right now. There was no scores table where the players needed to check in. It looked like a high school gym, but that was that, it was just great first half. And like I said, and you'll hear later on, if only this team – could put together a full 40 minutes. I'm just saying the the point that you texted me about how, you know, the same thing happened against Duquesne before uh, was the same thing that Coach Cox said to his players at halftime, according to uh, a couple of reporters. And it just, I don't I don't know what happened. It just fell through, and, and this team just, it, it's sad. It's, it's sad to see. And they built the lead in the first half, doing what they did in the second half against George Mason. They did not turn the ball over. I want to say they had two turnovers in the first half, and it showed that they played well. And I just – if they would have just kept that up in the second half, we'd be have a totally different view on the season. I know Twitter turned into a dumpster fire after this game, blaming players, blaming coaches. I My personal, like, my personal opinion, this was on the coaching staff, not taking the timeout, not – 
yelling at the players to do to keep crashing the basket. It's almost like you or I, oh, we're up 14, we can settle and just coast the game. They needed to keep their pedal to the metal and keep on going. And it was just the turnover started and it just created a chain reaction. I remember the dunk by Duquesne brought down to six and then they came back and hit a three and brought it down to a three-point lead. And I was like, oh, we're in trouble now. And then it turns out we lost the game. I was more upset with the UMass loss because – they played like crap in the first half. URI played great in this Duquesne game and just did not come to play in the second half, and it was disheartening to see. Yep, and then and then quickly too. Like I don't have I don't have an issue at all regarding the shot selection at the end of the game. I don't think it should have came down to that, but I will let DJ Johnson take that shot nine times out of ten. Literally, we'll let him. We'll, we'll let him give that look because he'll make it in every nine times out of ten. And that'll go. You got to give a little bit of credit to Fats there. Fats drove. He know he saw that the he had no shot at getting the layup off, and he saw an open man and got rid of it. Fats could have went up there, tried to make contact, tried to get a foul or get a miraculous shot, but Fats realized that he had a better opportunity and a more high percentage shot. Even though, albeit it was a three, it was more high percentage than him driving to the basket like he did. No issues with that, and maybe earlier in the game that would have went in, but URI shot 0 of 7 from 3 in the second half. And thirty three percent overall in the second half. That's not going to win you many ball games when you're when you were shooting so much better in the first half. And credit Duquesne for locking down on defense. They could have folded up. It was a it was a big day in the American history, and you nobody was really paying attention to college basketball. Duquesne could have easily folded in the second half and said screw this and gotten back to doing whatever they were doing. But give them credit for coming out and stealing that game. Yeah. Just just a terrible loss all the way around. Uh, you're right, loses to Duquesne 71-69, putting them at 7-8 and eight for the season and 4-4 four and four in the Atlantic 10, uh, and closing out getting uh, one win and one loss in the two-game span that we talked about when we did say this team d- needed to go 2-0 and o in these games. And we'll talk a little bit later in the game previews about what we think uh, should be coming up for this team. Uh, but... Now, let's get into the news from around the A-10. There is a lot of stuff to talk about around the A-10 this week, right, Andrew? Yeah, so follow along with me quick. Get your notepads out. It's going to be an interesting one. We're going to first start off with the actual news, and we'll get into this, to the uh, scheduling things. So, Jalen Crutcher was named your player of the week. He's from Dayton. We know him all too well. And unfortunately, the freshman of the week comes from UMass, Ronnie DeGray third. This year, the A-10s men's and women's tournaments will be sponsored by the Air Force Reserve, even though we do not know where the tournament will be playing. St. Louis is ranked 25th in the AP poll, which is a little questioning, even though they haven't played any games in the three in three weeks. Um, and we're going to touch on the URI women's program. They are cleared to return to play on Saturday after being put on a COVID pause. And URI's women's Emmanuel Tahani is the A-10 player, women's co-player of the week. Congratulations to her. And URI's women's basketball program is off to a 4-2 start, which is their best start in 25 years. Mikhail Mitchell of URI was also named to the A-10 honor roll for this past week. All right, so now we're going to get into the COVID and the rescheduling games. So follow along because it's confusing. And I do apologize if I get any of this wrong. And Lord knows, 24 hours from now, could all be wrong anyway. So, per John Rothstein, Richmond and St. Louis are going to be coming back from their COVID pauses and start practicing this weekend. George Washington is currently on a pause, which caused a whole bunch of games to be 
canceled, including URI's game against George Washington, which has not been rescheduled yet. URI picked up a game against Fordham on Sunday. Duquesne picked up a game on Saturday against the Bonnies. Richmond and VCU's game got rescheduled for February 17th. VCU picked up a game against the Bonnies on Wednesday night. And Richmond's game, also against St. Bonaventure, got postponed. And nothing has come out yet as of this recording about how the A-10 plans to reschedule all of St. Louis's games that they've missed. As soon as you hear anything, we'll be sure to post it on Twitter and we'll keep you updated throughout our episodes. And Gary, I think I got it all. I know it was a crazy week in the A-10, a lot of scheduling things, but there you go around the A-10. And I feel like I should get a player of the week for that one. I, I agree with you, Andrew. There, there's so much to unpack uh, regarding the scheduling uh, issues. We don't know anything. Imagine if we were a complete NCAA podcast, how much scheduling issues we'd have to go yeah, over. Yeah, exactly. There's so much that we, we don't even know about what could, could change with the schedule. Heck, by the time the episode releases on Friday, everything could have changed. So who knows at this point. Bite your tongue, because if I have to record, re-record this, I might have to smack you. Yep. Uh, but that is your news from around the 810. Uh, we're going to go into the game previews quickly before we get to our interview with Stone Freeman. Uh, so you URI with two games coming up, uh, as interested in the around the 810 update. Uh, they have picked up a game against Fordham. That game was moved up and is now happening on Sunday uh, at 2.30 p.m. on NBC Sports Network. Uh, and then URI uh, travels to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for a game against LaSalle, uh, against the Explorers uh, on ESPN+. Plus. That game happening at 5 p.m. on Wednesday. So two games coming up for URI, uh, a game against Fordham, uh, who did also beat Dayton this year, uh, and then a game at LaSalle. Yeah, should we say it every week, but this week honestly should be the week that URI goes 2-0, Maybe can finally put some wins together. Fordham, we were supposed to play them at the end of the year. They're 1-6. Their only win was against Dayton in an otherwise tragic season, to be quite frank with you about the Fordham Rams. it's They're a terrible team. They should be relegated to a different conference, D2. I don't know what they need to do, but Fordham is not very good at basketball. They lost to George Washington, 71-47. to They lost to LaSalle, 89-52. to And they only scored 45 points against Duquesne. Like, and 46 against UMass. If all goes well, you or I should be able to take care of business and destroy Fordham and have a nice, easy Sunday afternoon. They shoot 35% from the field, 25% from three-point land. They're just not a, they're, they shoot 65% from the free throw line. They're just not a very good team. They turn they turn the ball over. They've had 93 turnovers this year, only 75 assists. So this is definitely definitely a game where you or I can work on some things and hopefully hopefully get back off the schneid. And then and then obviously you or I heads to LaSalle on uh Wednesday and I'm not taking anything away from LaSalle, but I feel like that game's going to be a little tougher than the Fordham game, don't you think? Oh, yes. And I think I think I will I will tell you right now that I think that LaSalle is better than their schedule ind- indicates. They played a they played a semi-tough non-conference schedule against St. John's and Maryland 
and I want to say that they play they oh they did not end up getting to play the Villanova game, which is sad because that's a, that is such a big big thing in Philly. All the Philly teams play each other, um, but they beat St. Joseph's ninety to eighty three. They they by all accounts they're they're three and four in the conference. A couple of tough losses, but they they're I think they're better than their their uh, their record indicates. Their team they. Shoot 35% from the three-point line, 43% from the field, so that's actually pretty good. They score 66 points a game, average about 33 rebounds a game, only averaging about 14 turnovers a game, which is actually pretty good. Um, Jack Clark, uh, they have no guys that average over 10 points a game, so they spread the ball around. Um, One funny LaSalle story that I will tell you is Pookie Powell. Gary and I actually, when we went to Brooklyn a couple years ago, we were we played LaSalle in the first round and we were uh we were yelling at Pookie Powell the whole entire game and it just turns out that three rows down and about two rows to our right was none other than Pookie Powell's mother and she she confronted us and we when we we said questionable things and then after the game I went up to Pookie's mom and I was like that meant no disrespect we did the same thing up at URI. We actually Pookie Powell was one of my favorite players in the A10. He had been there for four years, and I, I and I told her I honestly was like, I'm gonna miss Pookie. He was one hell of a player, and I wish you guys nothing but the best. And she goes, Oh, I love the drawing back and forth, and I wish she wished us luck. And oh, I miss Pookie. So, but other than that, nothing really to write. And I know Gary and I did. We ended up did going to LaSalle a few years ago, which their arena is terrible, but. Decent team, and I think they're on the right track with their new coach. Oh, it's going to be – believe me, I think that the LaSalle game is going to be uh, a little tough, but I hope that this team can get some adversity and come through. I'm not too worried about the Fordham game, but two games coming up for URI, Sunday against Fordham, 2-3 and NBC Sports Network, and then Wednesday uh, at LaSalle, 5 p.m. on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, but now it's time to get into the best part of this episode. Uh, me and Andrew got the opportunity to interview Stone Freeman. Stone uh, is a commentator for your view uh, at ESPN Plus when uh, URI has the home feed on there. Uh, and he works directly for the team, uh, helping with commentary and other aspects of that from there. Uh, so let's go to that Stone interview now. All right, Rhodey Nation, we are joined today by an up-and-coming star and a Rhodey alum in the sports journalism market, Stone Friedman. Thank you very much for joining us today, Stone. Thank you guys for having me. I, I, there's there's not many, there's a lot of those cardboard cutouts in the Ryan Center. There's not many that I realize, but I see the two of you sitting in the stands, and I just think, damn, we need we need the ruckus back. This all this stuff's gonna end because you know it hits it hits home when you walk into your home arena and you're like, this is usually where JV is and where you guys are. But I'm I'm happy to hear you guys are doing this. We get to talk roadie hoops, and uh, thank you guys for having me. It's it's really gonna be fun. I'm just happy we we finally got you on the show. Like I I think just with everything kind of rolling around and just the pandemic and not being in the arena makes everything a lot tougher. And just keeping in touch in general, like we miss oh, being sure. at the Ryan Center. I'm happy that we have our cardboard cutouts there, but like it, yeah. believe me, I'm like it is something that it's nice to be able to to finally chat with you and kind of get a conversation here and um you know being able to to talk. I do want to jump in, Stone, and uh, give you an opportunity. I know, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you did lose your father to uh, coronavirus. And I know that myself and Andrew on the first episode of Rody Baseline kind of were, 
you know, sending out prayers and, and just hoping for Big Russ and unfortunately did lose him. Um, so I just want to give you the floor. And I know that you've been asked the question a lot lately, but just kind of giving the fans kind of uh, an idea of who Russ was and, you know, what he meant to you and, and rodeo basketball tied in in general. Absolutely. No, I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys, uh, the well wishes, the prayers and whatnot. It's all, you know, it's, it's been incredible. And, and again, it's, I don't want this to be too hyperbolic. I don't want it to sound fake or cliche, but it's, it's genuine. I mean, we have these little niches of communities, right. And, and in our state um, with it being so small, we didn't just get a couple communities. We got an entire state of people, um, you know, with my dad being in law enforcement, that, that helped um, my sisters and I, we're all URI people. So my dad, we would always joke because he went to Norwich, which was a division three um, school in Vermont. Um, but I always assumed, you know, not assumed, I always just said he was uh, a Ram by association because his, as he put it, his paychecks used to go from the state, from, um, what, what did he say? He would go, they'd go from the state house to URI because he was a state employee. So whatever he made <laughs> went right back to the state anyway because he sent three kids there. So, um, yeah, my dad was exactly the best way I can put it. What I've put on social media of Big Russ was him. I mean, there, there was no like I truthfully believe he would he, he would have been able to make it on like a show like Impractical Jokers where like it's just dudes having fun. And that's who oh, he was. Man. And um I love to talk about him too, so I can go on forever. But yeah, you know, it's it sucks that we lose him, um, obviously. But but like I tell my mom every day because the past couple months, uh, you know, because he was in the hospital for a month alone, and then this whole month without him, you know, if it didn't suck, it probably meant that the relationship wasn't good. And and if it hurts, it's because you know that's who he was. He went everywhere with me though. He traveled to any NCAA game that I went to. He was at he was at um, the last two A ten championships with me um he went everywhere football games he used to go to when, whenever it was in new england so we, we went to harvard together for football we went to uconn for football and it was the he never had to tell me he believed in me i could just find him in the stands and there was him and mom came to hawaii with me a couple of years back so he's uh he'll be with me forever and uh I, I i will throw this not to get too personal but we each picked something to bury dad with and um dad got buried with his roadie basketball hat so that should put perspective oh, our oh that makes see that makes me feel really really good i yeah, like that a our lot. relationship especially the last i mean he's always been the best dad in the world but the, once i got to college and into my master's degree he just embraced, he used to get mad when I'd get my friends tickets. I'd get, you know, if there was like a, like a Manhattan, <laughs> Manhattan came to town the day before Thanksgiving yep. last year. Yep. And I was like, my uncle was in town because he, my dad's originally from the Cape. It was his brother. And he was like, Hey, can you get me and my girlfriend tickets? I said, absolutely. And I usually could get two. And I was like, I'm not going to give tickets to my dad to, for Manhattan. And he was irate. He was like, you kidding me? You sitting your uncle instead of me. And I was like, dude, I, I thought, I thought you were going to get ready because my mom always wanted home to get ready for dinner. I said, you and mom weren't going to go see Manhattan play at four o'clock on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, but he got to see Alabama. He loved that game. We went to the last couple PC games together. So yeah, it was, uh, our relationship was really built around roadie hoops and, and him just being a great dad. So thank, thank you for giving me a couple seconds to talk about him. No, absolutely. I mean, he, we, we've heard so many things and, and from you and from everyone in general and just seems like a great person. The one thing that I remember from a couple, it's now a couple months, maybe a, a year or two back was that you guys uh, ended up building together that URI kind of basketball court in your backyard. Yeah. And I yeah, remember yeah. seeing that and going, that's the coolest thing. 
Like that's just yeah. like it's just something you're gonna remember. Like, oh, look, there's this hoop in the backyard, like where we can shoot with a URI logo, and it looks like the court. Like, yeah, that's oh, that, the, the best way to describe. Here's a good story for you. My grandfather, my my mom's dad, so my dad's father-in-law, used to say all the time that it he he was so surprised at the way dad turned out because when my mom and dad first met, he used to say my dad would wouldn't even know how to use a screwdriver. Like he was not handy, didn't do any of that stuff. And then when he had kids and he had, and he met my mom and they built the house and all this stuff, he could do everything. So during this, that was at the beginning of quarantine and him and I think it was my sister's friend was over. Who's very artistic. And he said, Julia, you think, you think if we made a stencil, a giant stencil, we could paint the logo. And she said, yeah, I don't see why not. And the two of them did the stenciling and then dad and I painted it. And yeah, it's, it's still in the driveway now. So that'll be a, uh, Whenever we go out there in the side yard and we're shooting hoops, that is uh, that was our COVID project, and uh, I don't I don't really think I knew how special it was until now, a couple months later. But yeah, that that's still there. If you drive by the house now, the, the logo's still there, and we actually had uh, a couple people ask us if we could do it in their driveway, and I was like, uh, we're not professionals. This was really <laughs> like no, this is not like, yeah. this is not something that uh, this is not something this is luck that it looks really good. Like I oh, can never yeah. do it. Oh again. yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was I was not trying that again. We we. You know, we, he was a perfectionist, so there's a couple things he would probably say. Yeah, we could have done that a little better. The eyes should be a little bigger, but overall, yeah, we got it done. So that's in the driveway. Uh, well, that is a great, great story. And let's uh, jump into talking about Rhodey basketball. The three of us live, breathe, and bleed Keeney Blue. So we might as well just hop right into it, Stona. Where do you think the team is at right now? And what do you think some of their strengths and weaknesses and how we can improve on this season? Yeah, uh, I, I'll show our hand a little bit. We did. Uh, you guys checked in with me before this, so we could make sure everything was technical. And this was before the Duquesne game. And I said, "Well, here's what I'd like to talk about on this episode. But if we lose, everything will change. Of course, uh, the world works mysterious ways, and we lose tonight at Duquesne. So, I, I really, after that George Mason game, you know, I thought the UMass loss maybe knocked this team a little bit back and, and realized, okay, this, this is, you know, we, we gotta, we gotta get our heads out of our butts because I think Davidson's better than they. I don't think they're great, but I think they're better um, than they're given credit for. The Richmond loss doesn't bother me. They beat VCU on the road, so you, all of a sudden you have that UMass loss, and you go, okay. We just got to find our footing today. I mean, that's this is a confusing loss because it gets to the point now where you go, we're running out of excuses. I mean, you're 15 games in. I get COVID. I get all, but th- we're looking at a team that is one of the only teams in the country. I'd have to look at who, but haven't had a COVID shutdown yet. Knock on wood. Everything's everybody's been healthy outside of Makai Mitchell. Um, I, I really, I, the best way I can put it is I can't get a read, and I think that's because of the inconsistency. There's just. That George Mason game was a perfect synopsis of this season. The first half, you turn the ball over, whatever, like nine times, and you're tied at the half, but you played the entire first half down. Second half, you don't turn the ball over. Uh, Mikhail Mitchell's probably playing at an all-conference level at that point after the UMass win and then how he played against George Mason. You're going, wow, they can rebound the ball. They shot pretty well, and they protected the ball. Now we're looking at a game where they didn't really turn the ball over too much, but they shot four of 20 from deep. I mean, they, they just, there's not, there's no identity to them yet. And, and I hate to keep saying yet because I don't know how much more time we're going to need, but I just haven't found a true identity um, for this year's team yet. I just, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the looking back on it, I know post Duquesne, everything changed, like you said, but that UMass game reminded me a lot of the Fordham game. It was, that from a few years ago when they use it and they springboard to win the A-10. And I really took yeah. that 
Voss was going to be a springboard, and especially how they came out against George Mason in the first half against Duquesne. I honestly thought that they had turned the corner and we were going to start seeing them rattle off wins and get to where we all think they can be come March. And it just the same issues came up, not driving to the basket tonight, and turnovers to hurt them in the end. I, I think, too, just to add to that, I, I, mean, I, th- I think you're spot on because when you're up 17 on the road, like not only do you have to win that game, but that usually says something. Right? It doesn't matter the opponent. Like when you're up 17 on the road, it doesn't matter what point of the game it's in. It, it shows that you, to a certain degree, are serving your dominance. And I was I was all in for, you know, I, I saw it where I really started to, saw it to teeter away was where is it the kid Weathers, the big dude that actually found like he he dunked it on Antoine Walker and got the yeah, game yeah, one. Yes. And it became a six point game and I was like, Well that ain't good. And then they had the breakaway. Same kid broke away, threw it down, and I thought, that sure as hell ain't good. And then next thing you know it's a one point game and you know, we know that everybody's watched the game. But anyway, that that I think you're right. I mean I just I, I was not expecting a loss tonight. I really wasn't. I could tell you games, you know, that I've watched this team or a team at URI and thought, yep, this that that's a game we should. This one, when you're up 17 on the road, and I'm pretty sure every basketball mind in the country would agree with us. You should win oh, that absolutely. game on the road if you're up 17 on the road. It's just the way it works. It's just frustrating to see them have such a. They we know that the talent's there. They went up 17. Yeah. They beat George Mason. They beat VCU. It's just so frustrating to see the talent, and I would just love them just once to put together a 40-minute complete game and see how good they can actually be if they put together a complete game. And unfortunately, we just haven't had that yet this year. Yep, good. another good point. they got to play full 40 minutes. I mean, look at the two. At the, I don't know. I haven't looked at the standings yet. I don't know what the hell's changed in the last, like, 24 hours. I feel like but that changes on a, changes every, like, 10 minutes at this point. Oh, my God, yeah. I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't follow anything. But long story short, the other day, VCU and the Bonnies are meeting up. The top of the ten, I went, wow, they both have one loss, and they're both to URI, and then we go on the road and lose to UMAD. I mean, it's just inconsistency, not even just in Kingston. I think across college basketball right now, but it shouldn't be an excuse is, is really – you know how it works no not at all and and even you know obviously with with the games right uri loses uh, a heartbreaker to duquesne vcu blows a lead to the monies like yeah. it, it equally similarly and only scores one point within nine minutes which is terrible like especially we've done I'm not saying that we're doing any better but it's sure. I, I feel like the a10 in general the the I don't know if it's the COVID pauses like and and like you said knock on wood and I'm going to do it again just to be safe yeah, knock on yeah, wood sure. that that URI has has gotten lucky and you know a couple teams have had it but I don't want to come up with excuses saying that that's the real reason why these teams are struggling unless it's just a weird year for the A10 in general. I think the A10 right now is having a problem that it's had over the last couple of years where it's I mean I, I've seen it I know it's become kind of mainstream but it's true. I think it's just cannibalizing itself. I mean, there there are some like this year. I really thought, and of course, I'm biased because it's the conference that that Rhodey's in. But like, I really thought the top six teams in the conference, not all were going to make the postseason. That's what I'm saying. But I thought all six of them had a chance at going to the postseason. I thought for sure St. Louis and Richmond would be in, and then I really was high on St. Bonaventure or am high on St. Bonaventure because they have so many juniors that have played so many minutes. And I didn't think Dayton was going to be as bad as they've been, and I didn't think we would be as bad as we've been. I thought Davidson would be better and VCU is picked in the middle of the conference and I thought they were too low there's all these different variables but what ends up happening is is a team a, a conference like this if the if the guys at the bottom start to squeak away wins like Fordham and LaSalle did against Dayton even though LaSalle might be a little bit better than I think I've given credit for but when you got Dayton losing on the road at Fordham 
uh, that ain't usually going to equate to a good year in the Atlantic 10 conference. It just does. It and, doesn't work that way. And especially after all the success that they had in the non-conference, you, yes. you really, you just thought that the teams, the top tier teams were going to separate themselves. And it just, every year in the A-10, everybody just starts beating up at each other. And you almost wonder if the teams playing the tough conference schedule thinks, oh, we can just turn it on whenever we want. And at some point, you got to realize that the A-10 is a lot more tougher than it actually is. I mean, the, a conference game is a conference game. And I think that's that's always – I kind of learned that probably when I covered the Hurley teams because there were a lot of times that – because the Hurley teams were – even last year's uh, URI team, when you play at a good level and you've won like 10 conference games, right, then you run into – ironically, there were two different Dayton teams, but then Hurley's team ran into – right before that Fordham loss, they lost to Dayton at home. And then this last year, obviously, Dayton was just a, a, a whole different animal. But what ends up happening is you run into one of the top-tier conference teams, and then you run into a bottom-tier conference team, and you realize, wow, like even if it's Fordham and Dayton, they're on two different playing fields, funded two different ways. Dayton could probably be in the Big East. Fordham probably shouldn't be in the A-10. But <laughs> it's still it being D1, as a conference win. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, no, that's that, can, that can jump to a whole other conversation, so we're not yeah. going to go there. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, just to just to wrap it up, you're right. I mean, conference games matter, and that's that's probably the only bone to pick I have with people that'll come at the Atlantic Ten. Is I go, yeah, but you can't to a certain degree. You can't help what conference you're in, so you have to win your conference games, and that's where you know this. I even think Duquesne's probably a little bit better than than I'll give him credit for. But that's why those Fordham losses at home. We had one two years ago, Dave's first year as head coach, and then we had it in 2017. Those Fordham losses at home suck. Because it's like, not only is it a conference game, but now it's not helping your resume or metrics or any of this stuff that people are analyzing. So you have to win your conference games. And, you know, that's it doesn't matter who you're playing, really. You have to win those games. So segueing into this now, because I feel like sure. you also brought up here. So I, I want to read off what we have coming up on the schedule, right? So at LaSalle, because the George Washington game was postponed. Currently, obviously, we mentioned on the episode that URI may play Fordham at home on Sunday which is still to be determined as of Wednesday when we're recording uh, at LaSalle at Dayton at home against VCU at home against UMass and then at St. Louis. So looking at that and, and just in general with the whole rest of the schedule and we've chatted about this off the air too, but where do you think that URI makes it? Like, do, do we think that URI has a chance of making it in the NCAA? And obviously now that we know that was brought up earlier in the week that the NIT possibly is going to happen, do they even make it that far? That's the concern at this you know, point. Yeah, I mean, that, it's, it's a great point. And I really don't know um, because I think, I think at this point the obvious is if you want the NCAA tournament, you have to win the conference. I, re- I mean, that's, that's probably where we're at there. But again, I don't think that's too far off from where they were at the beginning of the season because they, they challenged themselves in the non-conference, but the, the negative side to that is they didn't win. I mean, the, the, the St. Louis win's good. I mean, uh, sorry, Seton Hall's good. I even thought San Francisco was pretty good. But I mean, that even that loss to Arizona State doesn't make them look good right now. That's like a quad three loss right now because Arizona State has fallen off the wagon. They're like four and six right now. So if we're looking at the season of metrics and things like that, when you look at their schedule coming up, I thought this would just be a great opportunity, including this Duquesne game, which has obviously gone the opposite direction. But I thought this would be a good sequence where they could stack together a couple wins, help their seeding, and and especially if you go into that St. Louis game with 
whatever, whatever that stretches. If say George Washington doesn't get canceled, you beat Duquesne. I'm doing, you know, a super crazy situation here. But if you won seven games going into St. Louis, then I think you're looking at yourself and you're going, wow, if we win this game today, we are the top dog in the conference. We, we really are. And I don't know if that's if that still stands. I think St. Louis is very good. I know St. Louis is very good. But they also seem to be on some type of pause every other week. I don't know what the hell. So, so just so just updating you, because uh, we found yeah. this out before the game, uh, St. Louis apparently is back uh, on Friday uh-huh. from their okay. pause. So right. <laughs> take that with the grain of salt that, yeah. that we know. Hopefully that actually happens because I feel like they did yeah. just come off of a pause and got put back on. Yeah. I will say this, just to wrap this thought up. URI on paper and I think talent-wise in terms of what I've actually seen, I think they're good enough to be a top three team in the conference this year. I just think they've shot themselves in the foot with a couple of these, this UMass loss, this Duquesne loss, and it's preventing them from creating any momentum to helping their cause. Um, so again, I, I, I don't, I don't not writing them off. I'm going to watch every game the rest of the way. And like I said, the first week of the season, this team could win it, could beat a team by 20. It could lose a team by 20 and it, nothing would surprise me. I just, I haven't gotten 15 games in and I don't think I have a strong feeling um, whether positive or negative about this team. All right, so it's interesting that you bring up St. Louis because obviously St. Louis has yet to play a conference game in three weeks, and we've seen it throughout the A-10 that games are getting scheduled and moved. What are we thinking about how the A-10 handles getting St. Louis caught back up to get completing their 18-game schedule, and if, God forbid, they have to go on another pause or another team has to go on a pause? How are we – at some point, do you think that A-10 is just going to have to cut games and – Chalk them up to next year, or how are we thinking that's this all shapes out? You know, see that th- th- it's it's a big question. I think it's a good question too, because not only does it come down to games, but it also comes down to um, exposure and seating and things like that. So it's not only just playing the games, but I think some people forget that the games are also going to determine. Like if you if you have a St. Louis team that is undefeated in conference play, but they've only played eight games. Who's to say that that's any better than the next best team that might have played all of their games and they've lost four of them? I mean, it's a confusing argument. It's a confusing conversation. I would hope the league is something in place because you had to have at least expected something of this metric would happen. Um because of all the uncertainties in COVID. I really don't know, though. I think I think that's probably my, my best answer is I don't know what the conference would do as much as I would say they're probably just going to have to come up with some type of solution to get everybody healthy. And that's why the, we're not going to the Barclays Center this year. Like you guys know, it's going to be at a host site. I don't know where. I haven't had any inkling of where it will be. I just know, like we all know, it's not going to be at the Barclays Center, the conference tournament. I think the conference probably right now is making sure, is worried and making sure that everybody is healthy by that date so then they can play a tournament. And then you get your conference champion and you go off. Now what's going to become really confusing is – if you'd have to cancel your conference tournament, which of course we saw last year when everything got canceled, but if you have to cancel your conference tournament and the regular season champion goes, then you're swimming up craps Creek without a paddle because then there's a lot of variables you got to go through. But I think for now you have to worry about just playing as much as you can, getting it to a point where even if you got to do it by winning percentage, you have people seated and then you can get everybody to one place. You can get them there safely. You can get them there healthy and you can get a winner of your conference tournament so then that person, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They won the tournament, and the tournament winner goes to the, to the national um, bracket. Now, do you think the, all the games that St. Louis is missing is going to hurt their at-large bid? 
See that? I mean that that is that's another great um, <laughs> argument because I think when I saw Not Koch tweet like about teams it. all across the country. No, everybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think Koch tweeted the other day, Bill Koch, something to do with there is a minimum game. Is it thirteen games or sixteen games you have to play to get? Um, a chance at the NCAA tournament. I don't know what the exact uh, number is. But yeah, I mean, I think the committee this year, I saw it more. There was, I think, I don't know if it was Gino or Emma, somebody in women's college basketball had talked about this because women's college basketball is just, it's it's not as, I don't want to say studied, but I don't, I'm not too familiar with the way that they do their bracket, but they still send 64 teams. Everybody plays in tournament, just like men's basketball. But there was some, I forget what coach it was brought up how the committee this year has... I mean, you want to talk about a difficult job. It's this year, the NCAA's uh, National Tournament Committee. I don't know how they're going to do it on either side, men's or women's. I don't know if it hurts them. I just know it certainly doesn't help them. You know what I mean? Like, they might be nationally ranked, what is it, number 25 in the country. But then again, I think they haven't played St. Mary. Yeah, St. Mary's a couple years ago, and this is when everybody was healthy. They were 25th in the country, and the, and the committee didn't put them in. The AP is a lot different, obviously, than the selection committee. So I don't, I don't know if it hurts them as much as I would say it just doesn't help them because there's going to be – what is it? The, the Big Ten has like – Every single team with it. I mean, you guys know this. We're we're, we're oh, major guys. Oh, don't oh don't don't get Andrew started on the Big Ten. He'll he'll talk Michigan for to you. Hey, so I'll show you what Live and bleed, yeah. Kimi Blue. But I am almost as big a fan of Michigan that I as I am Rody. Like Michigan, I love them. <laughs> but well, yeah, well, I'll tell you what. We're gonna get uh, what's his name? Our boy Quiddy Pay is gonna be a first round draft pick. So that's all I care about this year. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but no, the big, the big Ten is gonna look at possibly getting something. Like, I think I said to Andrew the day they said like ten teams in. That's yeah, what I mean, that, or something. this is this is what happens every. This happens with or without COVID every year. This committee in the in the NCAA. I mean, listen, money talks. They want the bigger teams with bigger exposure, biggest fan bases into this tournament, and and that is going. This year is where I think it'll hurt a team like St. Louis is if you can get a Big Ten team in that their net ranking might be worse than St. Louis, but they have a couple more marquee wins and actually just more games played. I, I let's let's put it this way: the NCAA has not given me any reason to believe that they wouldn't put the Big Ten team in over a St. Louis. But then again, well, I, think I haven't St. lost Louis faith is, that Duke is going to make the tournament either. Even though, oh, I mean that that Duke, this year when when I read that tweet like or that stat, UNC, Kentucky, and Duke first time they're all not ranked since 1961. I thought I'm no college basketball expert, but like Duke Duke this year gets blown out by Illinois at home. And like, didn't even move anything. Like, nobody, nobody even like talked about it. Like, the, the, the blue bloods and the power fives have have a lock on the NCAA committee, and that's that is how it is. So I think St. Louis is going to get in because I think they're the best team in the conference. I said that everybody was high on Richmond. Richmond's good, but St. Louis literally like has been to an NCAA tournament. Most of their young players were, I mean, old players were rookies, so they played a ton of minutes on top of have already played in an NCAA tournament, and they won four games in Brooklyn that year. That was 2019. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't think it hurts him, but I don't think it helps him at all. That's the sure. the the thing, and I want to you know jump into this quickly, and then then move on here, right? Sure. I I made the best point that they explained to someone about why how the NCAA tournament is. If you look at it, it's like the Big East and like the Big Ten are like the Premier League, the Spanish league in soccer, and then you and yeah. then. You have someone like the Atlantic 10 that's more like the Portuguese League that only gets like one or two teams in. 
Like that's what it is. But then you have like the Premier League that like in Champions League will get six teams in and then four teams in another tournament. Like that's just the bad luck that happens. And it stinks for the A10. It totally does. But it, it, yeah. it's what will unfortunately come to it when they, they start looking at something. And yeah, I mean, I think that St. Louis and Richmond are still up there. And yes, Richmond isn't at like St. Louis is St. Louis. And I know they haven't played, but I, I think that we'll, we'll have to see when they play their first game how they look. But I think that it's the eight, the Atlantic 10, like you said, eats itself and screws itself every year. And it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't, change. it does not change. And and it's, you know, we, we got to hope, but I don't know what's going to happen or what they're going to look at for who gets in and, and whatever it works out on, on St. Louis. Uh, but I do want to jump in. I want to change, jump back to Rody basketball a little bit uh, and sure. talk a little bit about the Ryan center from your point of view. Right. So obviously you've been commentating games there. Uh, on your view, and ESPN Plus uh, for URI for the men's and women's teams. Um, I have a question for you: Is there any big change in atmosphere with no fans, and do you really notice it while commentating or like looking around? Uh, I mean, I mean, you notice it. Like, I mean, I've always had an appreciation because my thing has always been: I'll always be a fan first. I always will, and 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 people might. Um, I interpret that as I'll always be rooting for roadie. No, not necessarily, especially when, like when I did, uh, when I filled in for Steve Mack in Hawaii and, and you, co- you come down to, you know, who do you really work for? I mean, at that point I'm working for you or I, so I can cheer for them. I'm an, I'm an alum, but there is a side to college basketball that no matter where you play, I am always going to be infatuated with it. I always will. And I remember saying this to Jack O'Mara, who I've called games with Jack and I are sitting right next to one another. And we can hear each other crystal clear. If you watch some of these broadcasts on like big time networks, you won't hear it so much with me doing URI games. But if you're in at a big time arena, you see the two, the play-by-play guy and the color commentator usually, maybe the sideline reporter, whoever they are, they're leaning in to talk. Or the sideline reporter's asking the coach a question. The coach is saying, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. That is where you notice a difference. Like I sit there and I walk. Okay, there's no traffic. That's the good part, right? I get, I get in there. That's the lone positive. I get. That in is, I will, and it, we all that, Roby that, fans know that that is the biggest positive yeah. out of everything. That's, is that you can get up big, and down in there without an issue. Yeah, I get, I get no problems there. But like you, you get to a point at halftime and. There's no, there, I mean, the game is one thing because, I mean, to a certain degree, I'm still like, quote, I like, I don't like to call it work because it's not work, it's fun, but like, I am still working. So I'm distracted. I'm calling the game. I'm focused on what the officials are doing. Um, I'm observing what's going on. Maybe everything kind of goes silent there, but like timeouts and halftime and stuff, I'm sitting there going, you can, there's nothing to do. You just stand there. I mean, the, the crowd noise, the pumped in crowd noise is a little annoying, but I think it keeps some type of norm. But oh, yeah, there, there's noticeable differences just in terms of the feel. Like big moments don't feel like big moments. They just feel like you're watching a pickup game at LA Fitness. That's that's where it gets a little confusing. Now, now, my question, do you think the the more annoying part, it, and I'm not saying anything bad about the Ramettes or the cheerleaders, is it that, sure. like, the the Ramettes and the cheerleaders, like, audio that plays? Because I feel like that's what we hear on TV that, like, after a while, you're just like, okay, like, I know that they cheer during the game, but it's never that loud. Yeah, I, I like- think to a certain degree, you're, you're, hit, you're hitting the nail on the head. It's what you have to do. It's what everybody's done. Um, the marketing team at URI has done a great job with it. I think I think they're, they're creating as real of a place as possible. But it's just the fact that it's not the real thing that makes it annoying. It's not the fact the cheerleaders are cheering or the Ramettes are cheering or the band's playing. That ain't the annoying part. The annoying part is that I'm looking at a video board 
that's got the band on it and the band ain't actually there. And then you're sitting there going, after five seconds, you go, can you turn the damn thing off? I don't want to hear this anymore. Not because the band's not good, but because it's not the same. It's just not the same. And that's where uh, where you, you definitely feel feel the effects of no fans and no spectators. All right. So switching gears a little bit, we all know that uh, URI has eight new players and we lost some. So I just want to like, see – I know Gary and I, we've talked about a lot how the transfer market's going to not only affect URI, but college basketball as a whole. Do you see that being URI's main source for the future and seeing us getting pooched by bigger schools in the transfer market and just how it's going to tra- change all over college basketball? You know, I've always I've always been undecided on transfers because I think to a certain degree, you look at a school like URI and you think, well, the transfer portal's hurt us, but it's also helped us. I mean, that 2018 team um, – or the 2017 team had Karan Iverson, which was a huge part of it, and Stan Robinson, who were both transfers. Um, then obviously it hurts you when you have this kind of uh, revolving door of transfers coming in and out and your team doesn't have any consistency. But I look at what um, St. Louis did. I'm not comparing the teams because I think they're two entirely different programs. But when Travis Ford got to St. Louis, he hit the transfer market hard. And who was the kid? Javon Bass, I think, was from oh, yeah, Michigan State. He, he, yep, he went out and he got a guy that played a lot, or not not too many minutes, but played at a big-time school that wanted to play a lot of minutes. You come in, and what you end up doing is you make some type of run, and they ended up getting all the way to the NCAA tournament. I think they lost to A&M that year because they went out to Sacramento. Anyway, that's besides the point. But they win the, the A-10, and now what you have is you have this whole plot of your recruits that are actually homegrown guys that now they don't want to leave because they've tasted it. Right. So that was kind of what, what Fats Russell was. I mean, Fats probably, I don't, I'm not saying he was going to, I'm just saying what the nature of college basketball is when Hurley left Fats could have went with him. I would have assumed, right. But Fats stayed. It's because he had just Tate or Jeff could have left, right. Sir Langevin could have left, but they're sitting there. They're coming off of two NCAA tournaments in their first two years. And they're going, wow, we got to stick around now because the culture has already been established. What, ha- what hurts mid-majors in the transfer market is your culture. If your culture is established, nobody's going anywhere. I think this year's transfer market was a little different because I think Jacob Topp and I think his brother might have helped him out just a little bit. Um, and <laughs> a, couple other, a couple other guys, I didn't really understand Makai Long leaving because I thought he blossomed really well, had a couple really good games. Um, and then you have Jeff and Cyril that graduate, but Dave and his staff, they hit the ground running. They got transfers. But now you're seeing what another lopsided problem is. Now you're not only in the middle of the pandemic, but you're 15 games in the season. You're going, when are we going to get any consistency? And then you realize this might just be their identity, that they haven't played with each other and they don't they don't know each other that well. I mean, look at Antoine Walker this year in comparison to last year. Two different players because he's played for URI now for an entire year. So he's going to look a lot different. Maybe next year they look a little bit better, but the transfer market can hurt you in terms of developing consistency and developing some type of winning. But culture is what's going to keep players around. I don't think culture hurts URI. I think what it's doing right now is, though, there's just a lot of variables this season, and one of them being new faces, new players, new names. And it's really hard to win when you're not, when you're not consistent. You know, it's, That's a really tough thing to do. I know it's transfers and it's a whole different thing, but – this team sure. reminds me a lot of the team the year before we went on that two-year run in the A-10 and we run the, we ran the table in the conference and then we won the regular season tournament that year. And I'm not, I'm, no, I'm not speaking for all of Ruin Nation, but 
if we have to put up with this year to get two great years these next two years, I'll be a-okay with that one. I think I, – I don't necessarily disagree. I just think what, what's going to go down as what I'll remember, the only unfortunate side is I think Fats Russ was too good of a player to only go to one NCAA tournament. And just like yeah. I thought Jeff Dowd and Cyril Langevin, believe it or not, were too good of players to only go to two, just like I thought Hassan Martin should have went to more. I mean, what happens was is – I mean, first of all, you got that. That was the year EC got hurt. And that's the only reason why I don't know if I agree wholeheartedly, just because I think if EC Matthews doesn't get hurt that year, um, I think they make the NCAA tournament. I think they win at least, uh, I don't because Dayton was good that year. So I shouldn't say they'd win a conference championship, but the A10 was stronger. I think they go to the NCAA tournament. Now you're kind of playing butterfly effect. You know, what happens, <laughs> what happens, what happens. But, but I really think that that team there. You look at some of those. I mean, they beat Dayton on the road. They almost beat Nebraska. I know almost don't count, but like they beat Houston at home. Like they weren't that bad without their best player on the court. The problem with that team was Jared Terrell hadn't really blossomed into the Jared Terrell we saw his junior and senior. But anyway, back to reality. I think the only thing that sucks about that logic is that I just I I don't I think Fast Russell if he's gonna. He's going to go down as one of the better players to ever put on a uniform, even though he might shoot himself out of a couple games every now and then. But he is. He's a great player. He's one of the best to ever do it. And I'm sitting here going, man, he's got to go to another tournament. That He's got to go to another postseason outside of the one he got as a freshman, which he contributed to. He was he was a part of that team. He wasn't just some freshman that, that didn't play. He was part of that. I mean, the Trey Young stealing score, the 20-point game against Providence that year. Like, that was that was a Fats team, too. But – I think he's he's too good to to only have one tournament under his belt. Well, I, I, I like that. Aside, Fats theoretically could come back for one more year. <laughs> he could, no, he could. You're right. And that, you want to talk about another thing that's going to screw up college basketball? That that I mean, I, I shouldn't say screw up because they do deserve it. They had a whole year, a whole tournament taken away from them. That that sucks. I can never relate to that because I've never been a player. But yes, I mean, he can come back next. So could Jeremy Shepard. So I mean, if but then again, do they exercise their right to grad transfer? I don't know how that works. I, I'd have to get a little bit more well versed in it because there's a whole lot of new verbiage and whatnot. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could you could be looking at Fats Russell, you know, the top scorer in the history of the program because he can come back and play as a 23 year old. I mean, that that at that point you're playing a man a man against boys, and who knows? We we might find ourselves in in the second weekend next year. I don't know. It's it's just a weird year. That's all I'll yes. say. It's a weird year, and this these rules that the NCAA came up with this year are just weird. Like, like you, like you can see these players. Like, are you telling me that Grant Golden's going to come back for a, what is it, seventh year at that point? Oh, he's been around forever. He's been around <laughs> like, forever. Like, like it, it's it's so crazy. Like how like things have changed. And there's a possibility that like he could come back. And like, yes, like realistically, do I think that he comes back? No. Like, but do I do I know that that could change? It could. I mean, he could have the opportunity, and like, I think in the end, if he's allowed to have one more year of eligibility, it's only gonna like improve his stock if he can get better and be healthy. Like, in the end, and and I know Fats is too short to play in the NBA. That'll jump into a whole other conversation, but still, like, there there's still a possibility that he could come back, but it, it's we don't know. We have no clue, and I well, the only person that really knows the answer to that question is him, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, there's one player in the conference that I need to leave, and that's not because I have anything against him, but because he's getting into the territory of, like, Jesus, this guy's still in here, is Kellen Grady. Has Kellen Grady <laughs> been around forever? Just oh, my me? God. Like, I, I think he played – Oh, my goodness. He played so much as a freshman 
that like it wasn't there wasn't like like the bond the bond venture team's a great example like they have a ton of juniors that feel like juniors or that don't feel like juniors because they played a lot as a freshman they're going to all graduate next year to that level because they're all going to be seniors and we're going to be going how much more kyle lofton do i need to see how much more oshun Oshuni do i need to see kellen grady's like that i'm sitting watching that first davidson game and i went there's kellen grady and i thought Jeez, he's been around forever because he, he had a big role in that year that Davidson beat URI in Washington, D.C. So I was like, this guy, Jalen Crutcher's the same way. How much longer do I put up with Jalen Crutcher? <laughs> Holy moly. But that's what, that's what the seniors will get. They might be back next. I might get a whole other year of these guys. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Um, I, yeah. Karen and I brought this up last week, and we see it at George Mason's with Tyler Golick and him being a roadie kid and all that stuff. And outside of Jared Terrell, UR really hasn't recruited locally. Why do you think that is? And do you think they should have went after Golick? So I'll answer that too. Is the first part of your question is is a great question. You know why why is that the case? I think it's because of the way that Dave Cox put together his staff. He has his connections in Washington D.C. That's where Kevin Sutton has his connections, uh, and his two other assistant coaches are still. I think they're great. I think Austin Carroll and. Um, TJ Buchanan, both with one dynamic of being um, the father's of basketball life for him. He's been around basketball. He was at Arizona, so he's got some high major competition. TJ is a Rhode Island, former Rhode Island player that was recruited by Barron, played for Hurley, and now we, we love, we love, we love TJ. Oh, yeah. Love I mean, TJ. I got, I, got, I got nothing wrong with their staff. I just think that they target specific areas. And from what I've seen, TJ took the lead on DJ Johnson, who came from Brooklyn. Kevin Sutton most recently took the lead on Ishmael Leggett, who came from the D.C. area. And I don't really know Austin Carroll's specialty yet, but they just got those that kid from, was it Trez Berry from Tennessee? But if you look at where even their transfers are from, I mean, obviously Malik Martin's from Staten Island, which is a borough just like Brooklyn. So that's probably where that connection of well with Hassan is obviously a connection. But then the Mitchell twins and Jalen Carey's from New York and the Mitchell twins are from the DMV area. That I'm not necessarily bothered by them not recruiting the Northeast. I just think that the Northeast, especially with UConn back on the map, I think UConn, Providence, um, that, that makes it harder to to recruit this region. Um but I think Dave just has – his ties are legit in D.C., and I think we've seen that. I think that he was the lead recruiter, and we all – we know all the names. All the names from down there. Stan Robinson was the transfer that came from that way. Um, Jeff Doughton, obviously. Surreal Langevin was a Jersey kid. That was back with Jimmy Carr, but that was Hurley and Jimmy Carr. Where you look where, her, where Dave Cox has his roots, it's there. That's why a lot of people were, were – I shouldn't say upset, but because Pat Kelsey left UMass at the altar. But when UMass hired um, – Matt McCall, it wasn't necessarily they didn't like it. It was just he doesn't have where where's his niche? That's what same thing with St. John's Woodstock Academy. Yeah, well that's yeah. That's Woodstock Academy East, as we like to call it. (laughs) Yeah. But like I I look at St. John's all the time. They went out and hired Mike Anderson, who's a great head coach, but I go, You're recruiting now to the big east and to the biggest city in the world for a guy that had success at Missouri, Arkansas, and UAB. I mean, geographically. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. That's why I don't know how the hell Mick Cronin is going to end up working out at UCLA because you go. He spent his whole life. Literally, he was in high school in Cincinnati. Like money talks, I get that, but like these are connections that coaches think about. Now, a kid like Golick is great. I saw him play at Cumberland High School. I had a buddy of mine. His brother used to play for Pilgrim. We'd go and he would say, "This kid, this kid's good," and he plays at Cumberland. I think there's no way, and he was. He was lights out, and he goes and plays prep, and now he's at George Mason. I don't know how recruiting works enough to tell you if I believe. They should have 
recruited him because hindsight's twenty twenty. After he some of the games, then you go, yeah, he was right in your backyard. You should recruit him. But I don't know the ins and outs. I do know that I think both Ed Cooley and David Cox would agree with me that if that kid is good for four three-pointers a game, which it looks like he is, yeah, they're probably thinking, well, if I could go back, I'd, I'd recruit him. But then again, they might feel enough comfortable with their roster that his roster spot might have taken that roster spot that is – to one of the freshmen now that's going to get redshirted and it might be a key piece going forward. So, you know, I think that's just a, a hindsight type of type of idea, but sure. I mean, when you got a kid like that in your backyard and you see what he's doing, um, you probably would have liked them to take a closer look at it, but who's to say that he wanted to get away from home too. And, and he finds himself at George Mason. It's just recruiting is, is a, is an iceberg. We see the tip of it and there's so much more beneath it that, that, Granted, right, some of it could be dirty, which you'll see at a lot of bigger schools, but there's a lot more to recruiting than I think the average person quite gets a glimpse at. No, and I and similarly, I think the and we brought this up on the show a couple of weeks ago when talking about Tyler Golick. Similarly, right, the only person that I can think of on the top of my head that's a local player is David Duke from PC, right? Yeah, like like that's the only person. But it, it, the the only I I understand is their ties are in in DC and all that. And I have nothing but love for all the coaches, and I understand the recruiting process. And there's a lot more involved than we know. Sure. But I I my the only uh, rebuttal that I would give was would be that I think that what what is stopping these coaches from maybe like watching the news or like seeing a couple clips and then maybe kind of like going to games. And obviously this is post COVID and before COVID, et cetera, but like going and seeing these games, but then it's the secondary part where someone like David Duke wasn't even looked at it. And it it was something that I think Cooley kind of said, okay, we're going to give this kid a chance and it jumps up. Right. But then you also have someone like, like Will Levitin, who who was a walk-on who, you know, didn't get his chance to to start, but when he did go in, did make some pretty good plays. Like it, it, it jumps into a whole nother, you know, side of it where you wonder, you know, why are we not looking in our backyard? Like, but maybe that's just not the way the mind thinks for them. Like they just, they're focused on the DC area. I think Duke, I, I could be wrong about David Duke, but I'm pretty sure Rhode Island offered him. It's just, he's probably got bigger aspirations than, than um, the Atlantic 10. And that's where the conference might hurt you a little bit. I think a guy like Golik, I don't know if he was, I shouldn't say good enough because obviously, again, he has proven he can play in the Atlantic 10. I'm not saying that, but I just think that he's a guy that probably did slide under the radar because they weren't expecting that. And he finds himself at George Mason and you can get minutes there relatively easily because they need all the help they can get down there. And um, he ends up playing well. So no, I I don't necessarily disagree. I just, I don't know. um, I don't know if, if, if we've had, I'd have to go. I mean, AJ Reeves is at Providence. Who's at UConn though? I don't know where Book Knight's from. But even Tyrese Martin, who transferred with Hurley, that was he was from Pennsylvania. So I'd have to go through and look at rosters and stuff. But I do know that the the Big East and and you know that that's going to hurt Rhode Island to a certain extent. It's going to hurt UMass to a certain extent. It's going to hurt Bryant to a certain extent. When you get two teams in the Big East Conference within a shouting's distance of your campus, that's going to naturally hurt you. And this is not 1997 anymore where recruiting is, is uh, recruiting is, is a business now. And I don't mean that just in the sense of like money's involved, but also in terms of how you recruit, why you do it. You know, what, what coaches are getting charter flights just to see some kid play in a gym and they get on a charter flight home and they're back having dinner at the same day that they saw a kid across the country. I mean, that exists. I did a, I did a, a uh, AAU tournament at, Albertus Magnus 
and I want to say this time around last year. Um, and I saw Nate Oates from Alabama, Buzz Williams, Ed Cooley, Mark Turgeon. All these guys are not oh, – mid-majors had a lot of assistant coaches there. Even American conference teams had a lot of assistant coaches there. But you get these guys that are big schools that either have football or Big East money. They get on a charter. The charter takes them to the place. They watch some kid play. Even if the kid's already committed to them, they just sit there. They watch him play. They get back on the plane and they go home. That that all factors in. That's why when you get a mid-major that that that's, gets a steal or that they're doing their everything right – you're sitting there going, they probably deserve a little bit more credit because I don't know what resources they have. I don't know what URI's up against. I don't know even what they know what they use. But I know that recruiting this year for everybody's different because you can't go sit at Pearl Jam and watch kids play all day. You have to have Zoom calls with them and give them virtual tours of your campus. I, I'll tell you, I, I don't think I'd want to be a, a senior or a, or a post-grad player at a prep school committing to a school right now because you just don't know. You can't get looks at places until you actually get there. And that's really hard given the, the public health situation. We're going to, as we're going to start wrapping this up, I just had one little question, one last one for, for you, Stone. You're around the program a lot. Um, what do you think the next steps are? Everybody keeps talking about getting the program to the next level. What exactly does that need to happen? I know we've talked about the, the practice gym, but there's got to be more than just a practice gym that we've got to get to get this program to the next level. I think it's the... I think the practice facility, though, is the big one. And, I, and just like you're alluding to, I think that's, that's, that's probably the easiest answer to give. I also think, you know, and this might just be because I'm a Rhode Islander and, and this I, I want to try to explain as best as I can. But like, we, we need some, some pride in this state for our state university. And, and, and I mean, listen, I'm a lifelong Rhode Islander. I ain't going anywhere. We talked about the top of the broadcast. I might be super biased because I got sisters that went there and my parents were here and raised their family here. So I got, you know, a lot of bias in this, but like, I just see a lot of people that, you know, we are constantly as Rhode Island fans trying to defend ourselves, trying to defend why we care about URI. And I think there's a mindset that has to change here. And it changed when it changes when you win. It's a lot easier when you win. So I'm not necessarily saying that anybody of us in particular has to change. I just think we, we need some investment at the state level. And I will always say that. I mean, at the state level, we need investment into our public um, state institution. Um, and that's not just because I'm a URI alum, but that's something I believe across America. State institutions are, are a backbone. They provide revenue for a state. They deserve to be funded properly. And that's outside of athletics too. I just, I, I, I haven't found myself believing that people care about the University of Rhode Island. And if you want true commitment from your athletic program or of your athletic program, you need people committed to the university. And I just, I don't know if there's and, and I'm not saying fans, I'm saying people that have power. I don't know if there's a lot of people that make decisions that actually care about the University of Rhode Island. And to me, that's a shame. It always will be a shame. See, and, I and, agree with you more and, on that, Stone. Well, and, it just, and a point that makes that even go through is when you walk down to baggage claim at TF Green, Providence College oh, yeah. private institution has a banner right there in baggage claim. You know? And that, that to me, that to me is because I, I see that all the time. And the, the fan of me goes, you mother. And I see uh, Alpha Diallo or somebody and I go, wow, like that's sick. And then I sit there and I go, but that, that is, that's why Providence, I mean, Providence is in the Big East because of history. So I'm not, I don't want it to sound like, you know, they, they just, but like they invest. Providence is a good example of a school that invests and they care. And, and it's a private institution that somehow has people <laughs> with public ties that care. 
Rhode Island needs that. And, and, and that's why I think, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on your podcast, I mean it, but like, that's why us fans matter. Us talking about this matters. I'm not necessarily calling out the fan base as much as I'm calling out people that make decisions that once we see investment in the University of Rhode Island at a university level is where I think we will see a ripple effect that'll, that'll boom across campus. And to a certain degree, I think that's what every public institution should be advocating for, not just the University of Rhode Island. No, and and even they, I remember, and this is going to be way before Andrew and yours this time, they had a bunch of us before the ruckus when we were the mob, like kind of go into like a meeting to discuss what needs to be done. And there's a number of things, right? Like, do I think that we should have billboards down 138 or down like 95? Yes, like we should, right? Like, don't get me wrong, right? I commute every day from from the lovely West Warwick, Rhode Island, all the way into East Providence. And I have to drive by that Friar Down banner every single time on 95, right? As anybody else does. Why is there no, like, like, why is that not there, right? And it's not the fans. I agree with you on that. But I also think that there should be, there should be people who want to invest like locally into this team to potentially get better. I know we're still looking for donations for this practice facility, right? Like it's not fully funded yet. It's pretty, no. it's, it's getting there, which is great. Cause it wasn't there about two years ago when we needed it, not saying anything about Hurley and, and Cox. Like I, I love coach Cox, but still like the money is not there. And I don't know what we're waiting on in the, in the sense of this. And it's not like it's, it's URI who is not promoting that, right? URI is not sitting there saying, you know, day of giving and all this stuff, right? It's really easy to donate. And I, I just, I, the only thought that I have, and I'm going to leave it at this, is the fact that if, if somebody wants to complain about how URI doesn't have a practice facility and they're not donating, you have no comment. You have no, you have no say. Like, if you have a comment to say, well, this is the reason why we're not getting players. This is the reason why we're not getting people at the games. Then you say, okay, well, what are you doing for it? Um, I'm, I don't donate. Oh, okay. So you're part of problem number one at this point. Like, it's That's how it works. I mean, it is, it is, it is in some people won't understand it. And, and, and it's no fault of ours. It's no fault of theirs. It's just, you know, I, I heard it a lot when, um, when we threw the bag at Hurley before he left for UConn and you're talking to people and they're going, Oh, is it, you know, this, you know, he can't be the highest state employee because, and you go, no, no, no. Like I, I you want to argue like that. Like I get, we're all going to have different opinions. I'm, I'm not telling you, you should be behind the, the college basketball coach being the highest paid state worker. I'm just saying for people to understand what this is about, you have to understand the logistics of it. And, and it's normal for your state basketball, your state, school's basketball coach to be the top state employee, but most of his um, salary is coming from somebody else. It ain't coming from the state. It's just the numbers that go against the books are the, are the top. But anyway, long story short, I, I, I think the university has done a lot better than they have been. Um, I, I think their investment into the Ryan Center over the last couple of years, I mean, especially if you're talking about the mob, you remember the Ryan Center, even in like 2014, like just dark in the old court. Yep. And, Yep. I mean, they, they've no, done no, really no, ba- no banners job. on the sides like yep, that. No light banners. Really good job. And then they went and got turf and lights at Mead. And then they've, they've invested in, in different. Um, and when Anthony Garrow was with marketing and now they have two other guys that are marketing that are making the social media presence known, like all that matters over time. That that helps you. So there just needs to be if when you ask me what the next step is, the next step is just an investment. I don't know if it comes from the university. I don't know if it comes from the state. I just know that people 
damn, got to be proud. We got to be proud of the University of Rhode Island. I mean, that's I, I hear a lot of people because it's the 13th grade that they just chalk it up as like, yeah, I went to URI. No, you went to URI. You went to URI. Like, like be proud. I got my degree hanging in my wall. I got my second degree. I'll be done in May. And it might just be me because I'm overly bleeding Keeney Blue. But like, man, wear it with pride. You didn't go to URI. You went to URI. You got that shit done, man. That, that's, that's ours. Wear it. It was the greatest four years of my life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's it, true. It's, just be proud. Be proud. That's that's my 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 best thing. All right. Oh, so we're gonna we're gonna go through and uh and and close the show out. We have two fan questions that sure. we have uh for you. I know we've we've kept it here a little longer, but I feel like we've had some oh, no, some really really good conversation on this and and jumping into yeah. a number of different points. Uh, so Andrew's gonna Andrew got the first question. Yeah, this comes from uh, Liam Osiri. She's an avid Rody fan, Rody alum as well. She wants to know who your favorite new player is or the most promising talent on the team this year. Ishmael Leggett by a country mile. Not because I think he's the best player necessarily. So I don't want to, when you hear by a country mile, you might think like, wow, he's really not high on any of these transfers. No, no, no. I just think Ishmael Leggett is a dog. Like, like he is just, he does the little things really well. He's only a freshman. So we get to see him for four more years. Um, and he doesn't turn the ball over that much. I think he plays a pretty good brand of basketball, and he fought he fought his way to get some some more minutes since the beginning of the year. Um, I see a little bit of Jeff Doughton. I see a little bit of Fats Russell. I, I see a, a really articulate player with a high basketball IQ that uh, is really excited when he gets on the court. So that, that to me, with most promise, it's got to be him because I think he's going to be here the longest out of everybody. And this will eventually be Ishmael Leggett's team. You can you can book that. This will be Ishmael Leggett's team, and uh, I'm really excited to see him over the next three and a half years. And what would you know? He's from DC. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, same high school as uh, Dave and Jeff Dowling. Yeah. Uh, hey, and and we've talked a lot about him on our show. Like, I think that he has a serious amount of promise, and I think that oh, the yeah. ceiling's the limit for him. Like, he he he's just gonna jump jump and over the next couple of years, he's it's gonna be exciting to see what he That's does. Right. Uh, and then our last question that we have uh, from Jacob Morocco. Uh, obviously, Jacob uh, went to school with us, and I know Jacob very well, formerly of the Roadie Cigar. Uh, what grade do you give this season so far, and should fans feel disappointed? One quick thing about Jake Morocco. Believe it or not, he is you know, the first person to actually hire me. He was the assistant sports editor of the Warwick Beacon my summer after my sophomore year, and Jacob said to me, hey, do you want to – write about some high school softball. And I said, sure. So the young, eager reporter like myself went to Pilgrim versus Cranston East at Aqueduct Field off of Park Avenue. That's besides the point. But yeah, Jacob Morocco. Um, the question was, again, now that I've spent too much time talking <laughs> to Morocco. Uh, the, the question was, uh, what grade do you give this season so far and should fans feel disappointed? So a two-parter. Okay. So here, you got to hear me out here. So nobody cut this up and make it seem like, not necessarily YouTube, but nobody cut this up and make it seem like I'm talking down about my Rams. It's not what I want this to be. I have a saying that I tell my friends every day. My friends ask me, how, how are you doing, Stone? What's going on? I say I'm a 6 out of 10. Because to me, a 6 out of 10, like, is a D, right? So when you hear, when you hear me say the Rams are a 6 out of 10 and you hear D, what I mean by that is, to me, they are just too inconsistent. They're not great. But they ain't good. I ain't giving them an A yet. 
Um, I think they fluctuate between a B and a D consistently. I think they're good games. They play one good half of basketball, so they'll get a B. I think they're bad games. They play one bad half of basketball, and it's usually a really bad half, like the second half today against Duquesne. So I don't know if I'll give them a, a letter grading as much as I'd give them a number rating. I think they're 6 out of 10. I just – I don't have them – they, they do something really good one day and it's kind of like you fail a test and your mom gets mad at you. So you bounce back and get like an A on the next one, but you still failed the first one. So your grade isn't failing anymore, but the A only pushed it up to a C plus you that this team has to find consistency. They got to stack a couple wins and um, they got to find an identity. Once I figure out this team's identity, I think I'll move up to an eight out of 10, but for right now I'll give them a six out of 10. Okay. Oh, and, I couldn't and, agree more with you on that one. So and and do do you think that to answer the second part of his question, do you oh, feel yes. that fans should be feel disappointed? I think I think fans I shouldn't say they should be disappointed, but I think if you feel that way, you have the right to be. I think this year we saw all these waivers go through. We didn't talk anything about Alan B trend. That should show you how many transfers are on this roster that there's players that'll slip through the cracks. Um but there's a lot of players on this team that that for good reason gave you a you know, a sense of, of hope. Like you see a Syracuse transfer and two Maryland transfers. Um, Haas's brother being here with his roots and, and his attitude. And then B-Train, who was the top player at Towson. Like there's a lot of pieces here and the pieces haven't exactly fit together yet. So I, I do. I think fans have the right to be disappointed, but I think this is the double-edged sword of the transfer portal. If you hit on them and they work out, you sit there and you go, wow, we ran this team like like a um, like a pro team and we got a bunch of we signed a bunch of free agents for lack of a better term. They came in and it worked out. But sometimes it doesn't. I don't know if we're at the point yet where it's hasn't worked out as much as they're just not inconsistent they're just not consistent enough for me. Because that Seton Hall game, if we if we did this podcast after the Seton Hall game, I'm sitting here going, Wow, they recruited well, the transfers played well, they won against a big East team. Let's keep moving forward. And Obviously, the season has kind of unfolded a different way for us. So I'm not disappointed, but I think fans have the right to be disappointed. Well, that's a great way to put it, Stone. And I just want to, on behalf of Gary and I, I had a blast. This was so much fun. We thank you for joining us on this episode, Stone. And hope to have you again sometime in the future on our episode, on our podcast. Please, anytime, anytime. This was great. It was easy, too. You guys gave me this link, and, and here we are talking roadie hoops. Anytime you guys want me on, and like I said, I'm, I'm – I'm not saying this to blow smoke. I mean it. I am longing for the day where I can come out of the tunnel and the two of you guys are in the front row there and we can have a, a chat before the game and we can watch the game. And if it's a win, I somehow see you guys in the crowd, give you a little fist bump or something. If not, I end up just kind of rolling my eyes, put my head down, and we walk away from one another. We need those moments again. So be well, stay safe. Thank you for having me. Anytime you want me on, give me a call. All right. Welcome back, everyone, from that amazing interview with Stone. And to close out this episode, our hot take is we just want to say thank you to the, to Stone for coming on the coming on our podcast. It was a great pleasure to interview him. The kid is going places. My hot take is Stone will be doing play by play for ESPN NBA primetime one day. And I just want to say thank you to Stone for coming on out to the episode. Make sure you guys give him a follow at the Stone Freeman on Twitter. And yeah, thank you very much again, Stone. Yep, and that is our episode. Don't forget, Your Eye has two games coming up. Sunday versus Fordham, 2.30 p.m. on NBC Sports Network. And then Wednesday at LaSalle, 5 o'clock on ESPN+. Plus. We will chat with you guys next week. Have a great week. And as always, go Rody. Go Rody.